The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. That very day, the first day of the week, two of Jesus' disciples were going to a village seven miles from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And they were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while they were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stopped, looking downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, said to him in reply, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of, these, of the things that have taken place there in these days? And he replied to them, What sort of things? They said to him, The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astounded us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who announced that he was alive. Then some of those with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women had described. But him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke! Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what referred to him in all the scriptures. As they approached the village to which they were going, he gave the impression that he was going on farther. But they urged him, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that, while he was at, with them at table, he took bread said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. With that, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he vanished from their sight. And then they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So they set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, 
where they found gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then the two recounted what, they, what had taken place on the way and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Gospel of the Lord. What a remarkable combination of readings the church places before us this morning as we continue to celebrate Easter Sunday. And again, to be clear, over this Easter week, the church celebrates it as if it is still Easter Sunday. One day, eight days long. And we find ourselves in our gospel reading today roughly at the midpoint of the day of Easter Sunday, this journey of these two men toward the town of Emmaus. But before we attend to them, we are given by the church to consider this remarkable moment in Jerusalem some month and a half after Easter Sunday sometime after Pentecost, as the disciples are moving through the city preaching. And we have this image of a man, and the language St. Luke uses is remarkable, who is carried to the beautiful gate of the temple. So somebody actually brings him there. We don't know who, but he is carried and he is placed there apparently every day. So every day, at the end of the day, somebody picks this guy up and brings him home. And the next day, he's brought back again and deposited right here by the gate. And to do what? To beg. Those details are not unimportant. And in presenting them to us, the Holy Spirit is also putting before us an image of our own fallen, needy condition. All the world can do at its very best is drop us off someplace where we can beg. And so it is that this man is placed at the gate of the temple to beg. He's not there to pray. He's there to beg. He's not at the gate to pray. He is there to seek worldly aid from those who are going in. What an interesting image of helplessness and neglect masquerading as care. Someone cares enough to bring him and pick him up, but then leaves him there to beg. And how does this man spend his days? He spends them as a beggar at the door of the temple. But not begging for grace, begging for coin. Begging for such coins as the world can throw to him. And of the hundreds and hundreds who enter through that gate that he has seen over this long time, not one bit of healing has come to him. 
And not one of those who have entered to the temple through the gate said, let me pick you up and take you inside. Let me pick you up and take you someplace better. How interesting. The certain odd indifference here. Everybody knows the man. He's the guy who's always there. But the problem is he's always there. And nothing changes. The temple doesn't change him. Those going to the temple do not change him. Those who have been picking him up and dropping him off change nothing. He is crippled and a beggar. He can't move on his own, and so he remains where he is placed. How many moments of our lives have any one of us been like that? Emotionally crippled or weak, deposited where somebody has left us, looking at the world around us, desperate for anything that the world could offer, but not having any idea of what we really need. It's this man, which is what Makes, which makes what happens next all the more wondrous, all the more beautiful. As Peter and John approach, and this man calls out to them as he calls out to everybody else, asking for their spare change, asking for some form of alms, which he'll spend in whatever way, but it clearly doesn't last. And they turn and they look at him, both of them fixing their eyes on him. And this would be different for the man, because the majority would have passed without barely noticing him. Then a greater, another number would have come by and tossed a couple coins, but paid him next to no attention, almost a gesture out of habit, a gesture that has no engagement. Some others might have paused, but there's something different about this. And again, St. Luke stresses that they looked at him. Each of them turned to him and looked at him. They saw the man. They didn't give him a passing glance. They saw him. And in seeing him, they saw what he truly needed. And so it's at this moment that Peter says, I've got no coin for you. I don't travel with the world's coin. I don't spend the world's coin. I have none of what you are asking for that I can give you. But I've got something that you're not asking for. Something that you don't even know to look for. And I can give you that. In fact, I'm going to. You notice Peter doesn't even ask his permission. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, get up and walk. And he lifts him. This man has been lifted and carried, dropped off and picked up for years all of his life. 
and someone new is lifting him. This is a new hand, a new touch. And the amazing thing is, Peter only needs one hand to lift him up. Because as he rises, his legs are healed and he can cooperate with the movement. For the first time in his life, he can move on his own. For the first time on his life, he doesn't have to wait for somebody to pick him up and drop him off. For the first time in his life, he doesn't have to sit at the gate of the temple begging. He can walk inside. In a certain sense, he's carried inside, carried inside by this gift of grace that he receives. But on another level, for the first time in his life, he can walk in there on his own. And he walks in with a certain ridiculous joyfulness about him, beautifully ridiculous, because he's jumping for the first time in his life and he's going to do it in the temple. And he's testing how his legs work for the first time in his life with all the odd ways you can bend them and use them and work them. And he's doing it in the temple and he must be an odd and distracting sight. And note how St. Luke stresses that too, the glorious ridiculousness of all of this which would be much less beautiful if it was less ridiculous. The fact that he is going to explore this new movement and rejoice in it, and that he's not afraid to let others see it. He got more than a healing of his body here. His dignity is different. His sense of himself is different. And... All of this has a source, and the source is not the temple. The source is Jesus Christ. How absolutely wonderful that is. And how beautifully, again, the Holy Spirit insists that St. Luke use that word, they raised him up, just as we speak of Jesus being raised up from the dead, raised up out of the grave. And we see here now the victory of the resurrection spilling into the concrete flesh and blood of human life. Now, with that in mind, we turn and we consider these two men on their journey to the village of Emmaus. Thinking, talking, discussing, and even debating we hear about what happened in other words, struggling to understand and come to terms with everything that has happened. And that's not just trying to come to terms with Good Friday. It's trying to come to terms with everything that happened before Good Friday and how Good Friday changed their understanding of it. And what they don't realize is that they're standing in an unfinished story. They think they have the last data point because Jesus died on the cross and nothing happens after that. Everybody knows that. And so as they walk, they're dealing with their expectations and all the signs they saw that said Jesus was something more. And the sudden way that everything collapsed 
and they're disappointed by it and puzzled by it, but they can't let it go because they sense there's something here that we need to understand. There's a real beauty about this. There's a real beauty about this. And as this is happening, they are leaving Jerusalem. And that is not surprising either. The Lord himself died outside of Jerusalem. And we see here that knowledge of Jesus doesn't come from Jerusalem. Actually, Jesus meets them on the way, moving from Jerusalem. And as because the issue is not the city, the issue is that they're trying to understand Jesus. And so the Lord appears, and we hear that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him without an explanation. So we don't know if heaven prevented them from recognizing Jesus or their own confusion prevented them from recognizing Jesus. Only that the Lord was there and they didn't know who was with him. Which again, if we're honest about our own lives, that happens all the time. We often say, Lord, where are you? And, you know, honestly, if we had ears to hear, he'd probably say, I'm standing right behind you, just turn around. Your eyes can't see me because they're looking in the wrong place. It's not that I'm not here. And so as they move, Jesus now very gently begins to reshape the conversation. And, you know, that's important too. He inserts himself into their conversation. He doesn't say, let's talk about something else. Rather, he meets them in their wonderment and now begins to guide it, begins to shape it. This is a beautiful way of even talking about what can often happen to us when we spend time engaging and reflecting on the scriptures, especially over those passages that puzzle us the most. Sooner or later, the Lord often will enter into that. And little by little, we'll begin reshaping the conversation to bring us to a point of some clarity. And we see that here. And so he begins with just, what are you talking about? Because he wants them to name it. And it's pretty funny in a certain sense when Jesus knows exactly what things, but he wants them to say it. You know, are you the only one who doesn't know what happened? You know, if you think about that, we should, we should chuckle a little bit, and you're allowed to laugh a little bit when you read Scripture. This is one of those marvelously ironic moments. They turn to Jesus and say, are you the only guy who doesn't know what happened? And you can almost imagine Jesus standing there thinking, well, yeah, not for nothing, guys, but I think I know it better than everybody. In fact, I was there. <laughs> um, and so Jesus lets them speak with what they think is their authoritative knowledge. He lets them say what they think they know. And then he stops them and says, but you're wrong. What you think you know is off course. 
And it's off course because the scriptures you think you know say something different. Isn't that interesting? This is why in our churches during the Easter season, the Paschal candle is placed here next to the ambo from which the scriptures are proclaimed. It is a reminder that only in the light of the presence and the resurrection of the Lord will scripture's full meaning become clear. It is Jesus who is the key that unlocks scripture because all scripture speaks about him. And so notice what happens. It's not Jesus saying the scriptures explain all of this, but Jesus now explaining the scriptures, showing what they've really said all along, showing what they've really led all along and how they really lead to him, how they really point to what happened in the ministry of Jesus and most especially during Holy Week and on Good Friday. And Jesus leaves them at that point of how the scriptures pointed to a mysterious victory that comes afterwards. And notice he leaves them there. He leaves them there because the Lord is pleased from time to time to give us the incomplete but wonderful answer because he wants us to be the ones to say, stay a little longer. There's something happening here, and please don't pass me by. How often, my friends, do we make the mistake when we're praying? And it's a fairly common occurrence, honestly, where we've been praying for a little while, and it's been pretty ordinary, pretty basic, but then there comes that moment of a certain consolation. It's usually right around when we've decided we're going to end. And suddenly there's this moment of a new thought, an insight, a bit of understanding. And we're caught between in ourselves our desire to explore it and our desire to get on with our day. And oftentimes what happens? We let the Lord pass us by. We don't say, if I sit down and stay here a little while longer, will you stay here with me? And so note the beauty of this request. We know that there is more, and so please spend this time with us. And it's because they ask him to abide with them, to remain with them, that the greater wonderment is given to them. But if they let him keep walking, they miss it. If they let him keep walking, they do not receive it. Note how here we have this marvelous example of cooperating with grace. The Lord has given us something, but sometimes to receive the full gift, we have to ask for the full gift. 
He gives us the first part of the gift. And if we're really beginning to receive it, sometimes what we need to do is we need to ask him to remain so we get the rest of the gift, the rest of the presence, the rest of the teaching, the rest of the moment. And so it is that then they are sitting down and the Lord does what he did at the great and final supper. He takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. And as he breaks the bread and gives it, they know who it is that has been with him, them all along. Then wondrously, as soon as they know, they no longer see. Because the vision isn't what needs to abide. The knowing, the knowing is what needs to abide. And here the Lord also clarifies the meaning of what he said at the Last Supper. Because this is how he will abide with us in this marvelous sacrament, which we celebrate every single day, whose presence we reserve in our tabernacles. This is how he will abide with us. This is his answer to that request, Lord, stay with us a while longer. Don't pass us by, but remain with us. Note how beautiful that is. This great gift of the Blessed Sacrament, the gift of the Sacrament of the Eucharist, which is what Jesus gives us so that we remember him and understand, because it is the continuing presence of his self-giving. The Eucharist is Holy Week in miniature every time we celebrate it. It is the Lord's sacrifice on the cross, and it is his triumphant resurrection and abiding every time we celebrate it. It is the presence of the one who is victorious over the grave. It is the presence of the one through whom Peter raises up the crippled beggar. It is the presence of the one who will not leave us orphaned, but who remains with us because we need him to. Take a few minutes today and if you have to leave right after Mass, that's fine. But take a few minutes today, whether right after Mass or later in the day, and recall that moment of receiving Him, the one whom we recognize in the breaking of the bread, and make it a point to linger a little longer in His presence. The first and most important form of adoration of the Blessed Sacrament is thanksgiving after Holy Communion. There is no higher form of adoration of the, of the Lord in the sacrament than that. Everything else is derivative. It's one thing to gaze upon the host in the monstrance. It is one thing to sit before the tabernacle. Those are highly recommended ways of adoring the Lord. But the greater way is while he is within us that we linger with him and we cultivate that habit. 
And so the church gives us this reading today to also remind us, we too can say to him, stay with us even just a little longer. And let us just linger here and rest here that we might know you more fully. And what a marvelous prayer that is. Amen.